0: if you would please uh, turn back to the passage that we uh, looked at read a little earlier saw, uh, in exodus chapter sixteen exodus chapter sixteen which is on page seventy three of the church bible seventy three going on to seventy four i will spend uh, just a short time this evening considering this together. Today is of course not only the first Sunday in the year, but also the first day of 2017. And we stand on the cusp, don't we, of a new year with all its promise as well as all its uncertainties. None of us know what it will bring. Will 2017 bring success? Or failure? Will it bring health? Or sickness? Will it bring joy? Or hardship? Will it even bring life? Or death? How do we prepare ourselves for the year ahead? Well, in uh, thinking on what passage we could look at this evening, uh, my thoughts turn to this passage, chapter 16 of Exodus because it represents a new start in the history of the children of Israel. For here we find chapter 16 of Exodus, the children of Israel on the cusp of a new chapter of the Lord's dealings with his covenant people. Here's the God's chosen people at the beginning of this great journey out of Egypt a journey which ultimately was going to take 40 years for them to complete before they entered the Promised Land. And in the chapter that we're looking at this evening, and in the chapters just round about, we find Israel being established in its daily life, established in its religious practice, and perhaps most importantly of all, they're being established in their relationship with the Lord their God. So as we start out on this new year, my hope is that as we have a brief look at this chapter, it will at least give us some useful reminders to take into the year ahead. And we'll look at it under three headings. Firstly, the paucity of Israel's faith, then the graciousness of God's provision, and then the danger of an insolent heart. But before we look at those three points. We just need to remind ourselves a little bit about the background to the account that we have here. Back at the end of Genesis, we find, of course, God's people settled in Egypt through the providential working of God in the life of Joseph. But by the time we moved on a few verses into the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, however, we find that a new king has uh, arisen in Egypt, someone who didn't know Joseph. And as such, uh, the Israelites found that they were no longer honored guests, but slaves in bondage, subject to cruel taskmasters. And the story of how God released the Israelites, with Moses and Aaron acting as their spokesman, is well known, isn't it? And suffice to say we should remember that as God brought those plagues onto the land of Egypt, it was the Israelites who were protected from those plagues which afflicted the Egyptians. And then this great work of release from bondage reached its apogee, its peak, didn't it, with the crossing of the Red Sea, the miraculous, supernatural intervention of God which was experienced, for any who might doubt about it, experienced first hand by the whole company of God's people, which by then we're told numbered hundreds of thousands of people. These then are the people who found themselves trekking away from the Red Sea that day. They were a people who had no doubt, or no room for doubt, that God was real and that he had just intervened in their lives in a most dramatic manner. They then had a three-day march away from the Red Sea into the wilderness, and in uh, chapter 15, just before the passage that we're looking at, we find there's a, a minor crisis with no drinking water, and again, the miraculous intervention of God saw his people's needs met fully. And then they proceeded, we read, at the end of chapter 15, verse 27, to this place called Elim. Elim, a place of refreshment where they paused before continuing on their journey. And that then leads us to our first point then, to consider the paucity of Israel's faith. Look at verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. The Israelites had begun to find themselves facing the harsh realities of the desert. For Moses, it wasn't anything strange. He'd lived there for a number of years Uh, As a shepherd, but for the majority of the Israelites, it was a strange, harsh, hostile land. And the comforts of Elim, uh, the, uh, the pools and the trees, that place of refreshment where they had stayed a while was becoming a distant memory. Over a month had passed since they'd left Egypt, into the second month now, and the supplies which they had escaped with were running low. And within a short while, we find there is this discontent in the camp. They were getting hungry. And as they looked around their harsh surroundings, they could see no respite to the problem. And we read a remarkable thing we read that the whole community grumbled against Moses. The accusation was that he had brought them out into the wilderness to starve to death. Now my wife tells me that uh, my memory is failing, usually when I've been on an errand and failed to buy the right thing from the shop. But what may be true of me in my dotage also appears to be been the case for the Israelites. For they had all too quickly forgotten the remarkable events that had brought them to that place. As the wilderness bore down on them, they all too quickly lost sight of the sovereign God who had brought them to that place. And in particular, I'd like you to notice three small points that come out of this complaint that the Israelites make at this point. You see, in verse two, we're told they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So they failed to recognize the providence which had brought, of God, which had brought them to their current situation. They complained against Moses and Aaron. And doesn't that in itself reveal a lack of perspective on their part? As Moses uh, deals with the matter in verses 7 and 8, he quickly reminds them that in fact they are not complaining about Moses. They're complaining about God. They're not complaining about where Moses has led them. They're murmuring against God who has brought them there part of his great plan of salvation being worked out in their lives. And that, of course, proved the foolishness of their logic, because if Moses was leading them astray to their peril, where indeed was the God who had brought them out of Egypt in such a dramatic fashion? Why did they have to go through the... Uh, uh, the uh, extraordinary lengths of all the plagues and the drama of the Red Sea crossing. Only if uh, God's chosen people were to be lost through the machinations of Moses. So you see, all too quickly we see that adverse circumstances crowded in on these people. And they lost sight of the fundamental truth that it was the Lord who was indeed A sovereign God, caring for them. Whilst it's easy to be critical of the Israelites for their lack of perspective, isn't this a trap that we often fall into? When we go through experiences which are difficult, or we find ourselves dealing with people or situations which are hard, don't we sometimes do the same? We're quick to find fault with our circumstances, aren't we? Or those who have made decisions. We're quick to blame others or even ourselves. And whilst it's no excuse for disobedience or recklessness on our part, it's easy, isn't it, to fail to acknowledge the providential hand of God in our lives when the going gets tough. And by doing so, we become discontent. The second thing I think we can see from their their complaint is that they failed to appreciate the desperation of their lost state, their previous situation of bondage in Egypt. If you didn't know better, you'd be forgiven to think that uh, Egypt was a utopia. You see what they say? In uh, verse 3, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Oh, remember, they said wistfully, how good it was in Egypt. How quickly they had forgotten the reality of what they'd experienced. The truth was that they had been in servitude under a hard taskmaster. They'd been oppressed by a tyrannical pharaoh and the depths to which he went extended to infanticide in their failed attempt to uh, restrict the, the population of, of Israel. Isn't it interesting that with the passage of time, not only had the horror of their bondage begun to subside, but their hearts have begun to pine for that bondage rather than the freedom which they now enjoyed. And I suspect it's a danger that we may face today. The world has so much to offer it to us, doesn't it? It might be a challenging career, a rich tapestry of the arts, the excitement of travel, or even living in a buzzing city like London. But is there a danger that we indulge ourselves in those opportunities to the extent that we lose sight of how desperate it is to be without Christ? Is there a danger we let the shine of life's experiences begin to eclipse the shine of Christ in our hearts? The devil will do all he can to have us aspire after temporal goals and yet forget that all these things are ephemeral and will pass away. So we need to guard against losing sight of how empty and desperate a life without Christ really is the third thing I think we can see from their complaint is that they failed to acknowledge their debt for their salvation. You'd have thought that given all that had happened in the last few months, that the children of Israel would have been ecstatic about the act of rescue that God had wrought in their lives. You'll recall that when the plagues came among Egypt... The Israelites have been marvelously and specially protected from them. And yet here in their complaint, do you see what they say? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Here in their complaint, the Israelites throw this rescue back in the face of God. Do you know, they said, we would have rather have died with the Egyptians back there in in the plagues and be here, where God has brought us. Now that may seem an extreme comment. The final plague to afflict Egypt was the death of the firstborn, and we are told that there was not one house in Egypt where there was not one who died. Yet the Israelites have been spared that through the Passover lamb sacrificed in each house. The blood was sprinkled over the lintel and onto the doorposts and that gave them protection from the wrath of God. And the Passover lamb, of course, pointed forward to Christ, the true Passover lamb whose blood affords us safety and a relationship with God. So at the beginning of this new year, what does the sacrifice of Christ mean to you? Is his shed blood something that you cling to as the most precious thing that you have? Do you feel your debt to the Lord Jesus, realizing that if it wasn't for him, you would be in a desperate and hopeless situation? Or is there a danger that for whatever reason, we might throw that sacrifice made by God back into his face? What can we learn from this complaint as we go into the new year? I'd suggest the first thing to remember is, or to remind ourselves from it, is that we all go through times which are wilderness years, times of difficulty. The Christian life can be tough, and we need to be alert at such times. And the second application I would take from this little part of the passage is that we need to endeavour to remind ourselves of the truth of what God has done for us in his act of salvation. Psalm 103, which we read at the beginning of the service, tells us just that. He says, forget not all his benefits. And that's good advice as we go into the new year. Well, if there's a lesson to be learnt from the faith of, or the, the, uh, the variableness of the faith of Israel, then there's also a lesson to be learned from the graciousness of God's provision that we find here in this passage. The people of Israel had just been murmuring. How would you expect God to respond to that? Well, we find the answer in verses 4 and 5. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. They are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. God does not abandon his people in their ingratitude, and nor does he pour out judgment on them for their rebellion. Doesn't this shout to us about the, the gracious character of God? In that unjustified though their complaint is, God tells Moses that he has heard their complaint. In spite of their ingratitude, in spite of their lack of faith, in spite of their hardness of heart, we see the Lord dealing ever so tenderly with them. And we see that God is a practical God. They have a temporal need. They're hungry. And the Lord provides for it. He provides food. Now, we don't know a lot about the manna that he provided. Uh, In verse 31, we're told that the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. So it was obviously quite acceptable. And the Israelites were perplexed by the food that was given to them. In verse 15, when they first see it, uh, they, uh, their first question is, well, what is this? And the very word manna means what? What is it? But we see here that the way in which God intervenes, is a way which can leave them with absolutely no doubt that it was not a fruit of nature that provided that bread six days in seven. It was the actions of a sovereign Lord witnessed by all who were there. And once again, there are three little things I'd like us to notice from the way in which the Lord provides the manna to the people. The first we see in verse 18, and that is the sufficiency of God's provision. When they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. So we see here that everyone in the company was fully provided for with sufficient food. For those families with large number of mouths to feed, Much was gathered, whilst with those who had fewer mouths to feed, there was less. But each and every individual in that company was perfectly provided for. Whatever their position, whether they were the leaders of families or the smallest of children, God provided for their needs. Irrespective of the tribe that they came from, God provided sufficient food To satisfy them. The second thing we see there is the faithfulness of God's provision, and you see that in verse 19. For Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the morning. This was a strange bit of housekeeping, wasn't it? At the end of each evening, they were to clear out the larder. They were to go to bed with nothing in the cupboard ready for breakfast next morning. But each morning, they experienced the Lord's faithful and bountiful provision. And we're told further that this pattern continued for 40 years until there was no need for manna because they emerged from the wilderness into inhabited land. Each day... Provision was given each morning. God faithfully did what he was promised, and everyone then was given good reason to trust in the faithfulness of God. The third thing I think we learn from the or concerning the provision of the manna is the responsibility that the people had to gather God's provision. You see that in verse sixteen. Because Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person in your tent. While the manna was provided out of heaven by the Lord, the people had the responsibility to gather it in each day. There was no shortage, for we're told that it lay all around the camp. And it wasn't difficult to gather. They didn't have to go far to get it. They didn't have to dig it out of the ground. It was there for the taking. But they did have a daily task to collect it. And look where it was. It lay on the ground so the people had to stoop to collect it. And there was a very real sense in which they had to bow before God to be able to feed on it each day. Matthew Henry says of this passage that God's bounty leaves room for man's duty. So although it wasn't an onerous task they had, they did have a task to do in order to feed on it that day. Now there's a danger, isn't there, in speculating beyond what's told us in Scripture. But I wonder what the reaction of the Israelites was on that first morning, when they woke up, they'd been told that God would make provision for them. What was their reaction when they got out of their tent the following morning? Well, we, we can see the question they asked. It was, what is it? That's recorded in verse 15. But what would their reaction have been as they began to understand what they were witnessing? Perhaps some of the children had an exciting time a week ago on Christmas morning. They woke up excited at what was there, a present to be opened. Children sometimes wake up in the morning and see snow outside the window. And for the first time, it's fascinating and exciting. What would these children, what would their reaction have been? They've been filled with delight as they saw the abundance of this food ready to fill their hungry stomachs. What about the adults? They understood the seriousness of their position. They understood the seriousness of their predicament. Would they not have been filled with wonder as they saw yet another in a long line of miracles wrought by God for his people? What about us? What can we learn from this section for ourselves? In order to do so, I think we need to understand that while it was a great event in the history of God's people, it was also a type of a far greater reality. For the full meaning of this event only became apparent centuries later when Christ was ministering on the earth. You notice what it says in verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. In John's Gospel, We read that after feeding the 5,000, Christ refers back to the manna. And we see this in John chapter 6 in verse 47 onwards. I tell you, says the Lord Jesus, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus, you see, makes it plain that the manna which came down from heaven to the Israelites was just a foreshadow of himself coming down from heaven as the bread of life. The manna provided for man's physical needs, but Christ tells us that he provides for our spiritual needs. The manna gave an extra day's life to the Israelites in the desert. But if we feed on Christ, we're told that we will live in a spiritual sense forever. The manna met a fundamental need, man's hunger. But Christ meets a greater need, a greater fundamental need, man's sin. What about those children delighting in the manna that first morning? Shouldn't we also delight as we reflect on what Christ has done for us, singing like Solomon that Christ is the one whom our soul loves? Shouldn't we be like those adults in the company of the Israelites, recognizing the seriousness of our predicament? Sinners answerable to a holy God, but also filled with wonder, amazed as we realize that God has wrought a miracle in sending his son to earth to provide us with a means of rescue. And those three points that we noted earlier, for the Israelites as they fed and gathered the manna in the wilderness, are also for true for us as we feed on Christ. Christ is sufficient for our needs. Whoever we are, whether we're old or young, rich or poor, Christ is the one who satisfies and with him no one need feel any lack. Christ is faithful. Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today and forever. Each morning when we rise, we will find him there to our sin and give us strength for the day. And if we're going to rely on Christ, we have to embrace him. We have to stoop down acknowledging that we are Sinners before an almighty and sovereign God. And we have to do that before we can feed on Him. A life trusting in, of faith, trusting in Christ follows a time on our knees, confessing our need of Him. But the third thing I'd like us to notice in this account of the manna in the wilderness is the danger of an insolent heart. As a family, we spend our summer holidays camping. And uh, when you tell people that, you get one of two reactions. You either get um, those who can empathise and infuse with camping holidays, and you get others who look at you with incredulity. Um, and they anticipate all that can go wrong. You can't sleep, you can't cook. What are you going to do about it? And the truth is that with a little bit of experience and the right equipment, most of these things can be dealt with. But the one thing we have never really coped with over the years is when it's wet. Because as soon as you step out of the tent, your feet are in the damp. You have to deal with it. And it must have been similar... For the Israelites who woke up that morning with manna all around the camp. There were no atheists or agnostics there in the wilderness. All around them was a palpable demonstration of God's power. And they couldn't ignore the manna around them. It was there. The only question was, What would they do with it? As they left their tents in the morning, would they gather it up and feed on it as they had been commanded? Or would they trample it under their feet as they walked over it? So too with Jesus. We can't ignore the reality that he lived on earth. You can't ignore the evidence of witnessed miracles that he worked. And for any who take the time to choose to look seriously, there should be no question of being agnostic. The only question is, what will you do with the knowledge that you have of Jesus? Will you embrace him to build your life on him, or will you trample him? Underfoot. Although in many ways there is a closeness and an immediacy between the Israelites and their Lord in this episode in their history, there are two dark shadows that we have in this account. And these two dark shadows are centered on people who ignored the instruction of God and who rebelled choosing, as it were, to trample on God's provision under their feet, rather than gathering it to themselves. And the first shadow we find in verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. We'll go back to verse 19. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So the first shadow is those who chose not to follow the commandment to clear out their larder in the evening. And we're not told why they chose to do so. Perhaps It reflected their lack of faith, and they had a fear that if they um, got rid of their food, there would not be any more in the morning, and they would go hungry. Or maybe it was simple carelessness. Either way, though, this was disobedience. It was ignoring the clear injunction of God. And the result is that we read that it all became a foul-smelling, festering mess. And that's a salutary reminder, isn't it, that if we ignore God's instruction for our lives, the results, whether we're Christians or whether we're not, is likely to be inevitably bad. But the second incident, the second shadow, is even more poignant, And we find this in verses 23 to verse 27. Let's read it again. Moses said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save what is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. The injunction to the whole company had been clear. There was no question that the people did not know that they should have rested on the Sabbath. And it's clear from this passage that it was not a case of ignorance of God's law. Rather, it was a case of insolence against God himself. The Lord's own assessment in the following verse was clear that they had refused to keep his commandment. They'd been told to store up manna on the priest's day and had failed to do so. You see, they had not seized the opportunity that was presented to them. And now they were hungry. They had chosen to delay. And now the opportunity to gather the manna had been lost. It was no longer there. And with our knowledge that the manna is a type of Christ... There is a salutary message in these verses. Day by day and week by week, the Lord Jesus is laid out for us in the gospel. We're reminded of the great commitment made by God in sacrificing His Son. We're told that the Lord Jesus Christ is there to be embraced, trusted and relied upon for salvation. And indeed that is the command of God because he says there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. But verse 27 tells us that this will not always be so. There will be some who choose to ignore this command. There will be some who despise the provision that God has made they will refuse the opportunity the Lord has graciously provided to lay hold of Christ. And then, having chosen to ignore, the opportunity will be lost. Let's pray together.